What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everyone, welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule, and we have a special episode today. It is summer, and we're going to play the what-if game, and we're also going to talk about the Mike Garland uh, news that he's retiring, and that there'll be an addition to the Michigan State basketball uh, coaching staff. But we're going to talk about what-if, and there's no better what-if to talk about than what-if COVID didn't happen in 2020, and what would have happened in Michigan State basketball season. I think this would be a really fun discussion. Um in addition to, you know, the great analysis and recruiting news you get from us with insights and all those things you've come to expect, uh, we're going to be rolling out more of these c- things, this content, including uh, a website, bulletin board, interviews, and more. And a special thanks to our listener, Patrick from Howell, for coming up to today's show idea, which I think is going to be, again, a lot of fun. If you have not yet following us on Twitter, you can go to us at, at TFFINOTS68. You can also email us with show ideas at tffinots at gmail.com. And on your uh, podcast app, please leave a written review. Uh, we appreciate those. And obviously, five stars is always best. So first, we're going to just go into the 2020 season, which, if you recall, uh, COVID hit right as the Big Ten tournament happened. Uh, I was actually, my family was in Indianapolis, and we watched, uh, I think, the end of one game, or maybe we watched just one game before it just all kind of collapsed. There was... And we were, there was the, I vividly remember it. This was happening. If you remember kind of the tipping point was when the NBA decided right. to shut down and it might've been the same night. Fred Hoiberg got sick on the sideline and yes. had to go into the locker room. And so everybody assumed it was COVID. It wasn't COVID. Right. He just had a bad stomach flu apparently, but that was kind of the, that was the moment I remember from that Wednesday of games. I think, I think that was all we got in were a couple of games on Wednesday and then Thursday morning, they were dribbling around in the pregame and, um, or early afternoon, like around noon. And then they shut the whole thing down. Yeah. I think it was that, I think it was Rutgers, Michigan was going to be the first game at the yep. noon tip off. Yeah. And uh, we were in a hotel room and, you know, they, at that point they already said, I think the night before they said, you know, fans are not allowed in. And so we're like, well, we'll just watch in a hotel room. And then, of course, right. you know, the world ended. Um, and that was a, te- a team. And we'll go through this, just go through the recall of what the season was. I mean, that was a team that really felt like it was rolling. And so uh, I guess let's just go through the, the season narrative. Yeah, but I think I think as, as we go into that, I think what you're going to what people are going to be reminded of, because I, I think that the. The common thought among a lot of MSU fans kind of ends at the end, which is, as you said, they were really rolling. And pretty much everybody had them in their list of serious title contenders, if not the favorite. I think if if you had taken a poll of all the supposed experts 
Michigan State probably would have come out as the top pick. Not a unanimous one, but the top pick to win the whole thing. But a lot of people, I think, forget, as they're going to see when you go through this, it was not a straight A to B line to get there by any means. This was a tumultuous season. And a lot of that's been lost because of the abruptness of when it ended and then, you know, the time that's come since then and how it's kind of put all of our sense of timeliness and proportion out of whack. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think, and I think the fact that COVID happened and no one knew what was going on, it just shut down the whole, whole world. You, you really just totally kind of forgot everything. You just sort of just remember that little point in time and, and the whole, everything just kind of became a fog, at least it yeah. for, for many people and, and myself included. Yeah. So let's go through that season because once I read through this, I'm like, yeah, I've forgotten kind of what it was like because it was, as most Izzo teams, I mean, there are rarely teams I feel like you just kind of sail through from start to finish. You know, you may have a time, you have good times and times that are one. that are really rough. The one year with Denzel Valentine, we got the triple-double to start off with that no, Kansas, right? I, I but they say, ended in a disaster. I would say, I would not say that one because that team did have a little bump when he got hurt. You remember they oh, lost Iowa. Right? Yep. They had a, it was the home game against Maryland. They bounced back, but I would say the only team that largely had a start to finish kind of run where they never really fell off until the very, very end was the 2000, 2001 team, the team yeah. after the national title team, that team was, if you remember Izzo's formula has basically been take some losses in the non-conference because of the quality of opposition you're playing. I don't believe that team did take a loss in the non-conference. They were kind of steamrolling people. They won, I believe, a co-share of the Big Ten title and then got to the Final Four. Now, granted, Arizona blew them out in the second half of the national semifinal, but that, to me, was the only year in his tenure where it just kind of hummed along and there was never that low point. So it's rare, as you say. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, and that's and that's probably the case for most teams, right? I think if we forget yeah. that college athletics is like that, and that it, there's there's always you know that losing stretch where you feel like they can't do anything right, and there's times when they can't do anything wrong, and, and just that you know whether how long those stretch and how often you have them is obviously separates the years. Uh, so going back to the season, it starts out with as it seems to oftentimes with the Champions Classic, a loss to Kentucky by seven, and then the tragedy of Cassius Winston's brother committed suicide. Uh, he, I think it was Adrian College. He uh, was struck yep. by train. And, you know, that was uh, obviously, you know, tragedy for the team and for, he was, he was close to a lot of members of the team and, uh, and obviously for Cassius. And so that really just put the, put the start of the season really in a huge hole, I think, just as far as cohesion and, and able to operate yeah. properly. So, uh, they then beat, did beat Seton Hall on the road in a big game, but then in the Maui opener, they lost to Virginia Tech, uh, they lost to 12 by 12 to Duke at Breslin in what I would, what I remember as a season ticket holder, an unusual year in that we just lost a lot of games at home, which is just not typical. And and used to using losing maybe one or two, but it were there were a lot. And that and that was a rough one because it was yeah. it was obviously coming the year after MSU beat Duke in the Elite Eight. Um, Duke was a very young team. The core of that team they'd beaten was largely gone. Um, they were their best player was Vernon Carey, who was a guy Michigan State. I think really thought they had in recruiting and ended up going to Duke. So they, he was coming in Michigan state, a preseason number one, you figured the, the stars were lining up. And as you said, Duke won by 12, 
that scoreline probably flattered the way Michigan State played. Michigan State was terrible that night. Yeah, they were awful. Yeah, they wasn't. That game was over with. I want to say five minutes left in the first half. Yeah, if I recall, yeah, that sounds about was, right. Yeah, it was. And and this is this kind of highlights I think the the loss of Cassius Winston's brother early in the season. I mean, Cassius wasn't himself, yeah. and the team just exactly you know when you have a point guard who's misfiring or you know just not playing properly, it it hurts the team. I think well, the Michigan team more than others maybe. Well, think about it this way: Cassius just gave Trey Jones the business, you know, whatever it was, seven months earlier. Yeah, and it completely flipped on Cassius Winston's home court. That doesn't happen if that game is played in March, in my opinion. But Duke got MSU at a point where their best player and their leader was still clearly not himself for entirely understandable reasons. The team was not itself, partially because he wasn't himself, and I think partially because, as you said, they all knew his brother as well. So this was not just affecting one guy. This was a team-wide thing. And it looked like a team that was disjointed, you know, and yeah. Duke wasn't. It was that simple. Yeah, I think so. So Michigan State then starts off the Big Ten season 5-0, and uh, but then got destroyed by Purdue by 29 on the road. Ugly. One of the ugliest games of Izzo's career. That was not even a good Purdue team. No, I know. It was It was a team that you thought, yeah, this is, you know, you, you wouldn't be surprised by loss, but to get just obliterated, I mean, yeah. it was uh, it was – ridiculous it's uh so finishing the first half of this big 10 season eight and two uh then a three-game losing streak where again it's one of those streaks where just like nothing's working and they look like a team that's spiraling out of control you think maybe cash winston's lost it um and uh lost again home losses losses purdue or, or sorry wisconsin penn state at home uh then lost by nine to michigan which of course stings extra then came back beat illinois by uh by one and a putback dunk by xavier tillman but then lose at home again to Maryland by seven teams, nine and six. And at this point, I mean, I remember you and Cam basically declaring the season over from a big yeah. 10 standpoint, big 10 Tyler, there's no chance. I mean, Maryland only has to win a couple games and they lock it up. And at this point they're, they're clearly the best team, in the big 10 Michigan state, you know, had potential, but again, just never looked quite right really. And you think because it was it the tragedy early and it just never quite got things humming. I don't know, but it didn't, things did not look good. 100%. That's I, I vividly remember saying that now, I wasn't saying toss in the towel on the season. What yeah. I remember saying was, okay. And, and there have been a couple of times, a few times during the court, not so many times during the course of doing this because they've won a lot of Big Ten titles since we've been doing this. <laughs> yeah. But over the course of Izzo's tenure, there have been a number of years where you get to that point in the season, you say, okay, the Big Ten regular season title's out of reach. Now what you've got to focus on is being the best you can be by tournament time. So you put winning the league out of your mind and you just focus on getting better every game. And there have been Michigan State teams that have done an outstanding job at that. The 2015 team that got to the Final Four. Classic example of that. They were out of the running. That was a great Wisconsin team that year. It was clear Michigan State was not going to be in it. So at a certain point, you're like, all right, that's out of reach. Let's just get better. And that team did and maxed its potential probably as much as any group Izzo has ever had. Um, I would argue the 2005 team that got to a final four did something similar. You know, Illinois was just the best team in the league that year at a certain point, a little later in the year. And it's okay, let's just focus on being as good as we can be. And it got them to a final four. And then that's where I thought this team was 
without question. Because as you said, Maryland was in such a great position that it was just hard to imagine how Michigan State would have a shot. Yeah. Think about all... it. Think about it this way. How many years are there that a Big Ten champion will have six losses? Not many. Yeah. And that they were nine and six. Right. So just from that perspective, you're like, what are the odds? Yeah. And and that's a classic, uh, I don't know, I guess that's just the Maryland just fading down the end as much as it was Michigan State surging. And then and then it was just, you know, a, sort of a classic is right at the end of the season, they just start. It, everything looks like it. it's designed properly. Every, the right people are in the right places. Every position seems like it's covered well and that they're just we're operating high efficiency, both in the offensive and defensive end. And the team did great. I mean, they, they won his five, final five games, including uh, over three of them over top 25 teams, one being Maryland, also Iowa, Ohio State on senior day. Maryland on the road. Maryland right. Maryland the road. Because they lost at home. <laughs> we, right. Even, yeah. Uh, and then won the share of the conference title with Maryland, Wisconsin and threw a tie, which was a surprise. But but uh, as we said to start the show, that team at the end of the season, after those five games, looked like a steamroller. I mean, Michigan State was not the team they were a month and a half before that. I mean, they were a totally different team. One that I don't think anyone would want to play if they had a choice. You would, and you had a lot of confidence even going into Big Ten tournament that this team has every good every reason to believe they're going to win that as well because uh, they're playing you know the best basketball in the Big Ten. They they had also it's also important to remember and I think this gets lost too. There was a lot of lineup fluctuation for a while with that team trying to find the other post player to play alongside of Xavier Tillman or to start at least, you know, the, the, the start of the year, Thomas Kithier was that guy. Um, I believe Marcus Bingham got some starts uh, if I remember correctly, but then they eventually settled on Malik Hall and that ended up now Malik Hall was not, you know, his best game that season came early. It was that win over Seton Hall. Seton where Hall he was just yeah. Conscious shooting the ball. He never repeated that, but he was playing really solid basketball by season's end. And two other guys who have to be mentioned beyond the big two, um, Aaron Henry had really settled into being um, a guy who was maybe he had, he was expected to have a big season coming in because of the way he played as a freshman. He was a starter on that final four team. He had some really big moments in the NCAA tournament. In fact, a lot of people, and I might be tempted to be among them, think that his getting in early foul trouble against Texas Tech was the reason Michigan State ended up losing that game. That's how well Aaron was playing. He was up and down through the first portion of this season, but by that stretch run, he'd found himself. And then let's not forget a freshman Rocket Watts had his final four games, he scored 71 points. Yeah. So we're talking about whatever that is, 17 and change, I think. Um, on average, he was shooting the ball. He was defending at the best level he ever did in his MSU career um, and and just was a great, great additional scoring threat that that team needed. You add to that Cassius Winston, who found himself finally. Um, you know, he you look at his season stats, he actually shot the three better than he did as a junior. He had a 46, 43, 85 shooting line and he was in the top 20 in assist rate nationally now the year before i think he was third 
So there was a drop off there, but still by season's end, Cassius was Cassius. Yeah. He was the guy we thought we'd see all year long and the guy he had been in 19. And then in addition to that, you have Xavier Tillman, who I just think individually, it's a shame that he didn't get the chance to go on that run because in March, because it was his last year's as well, obviously. But Xavier Tillman was so steady that season. And you can chalk up all the big men, the kinds of guys who tortured MSU the last two seasons. And Xavier Tillman single-handedly took those guys out. Look at what he did to a guy like Luca Garza, yeah, who had as good a stat line as anybody in America at that position that season. You know, he was just as good as he was really the year after. I, I still remember there was a segment that got a lot of replays where Tillman, uh, Garza got the ball in the post, and Tillman, of course, single coverage, just bodied him up, bodied him up. Garza tries to go up for the shot. Tillman ties him up. Ball goes off Garza, going Michigan State's way, and you just saw the emotion in it. That was what X did to everybody. And I think in the NCAA tournament, the fact that Cassius was back in sync he and Tillman, as good a pick-and-roll combination as there was in the country, in my opinion. Um, and, and then the way X was defending. Uh, Michigan State was ready to go on a run. They had enough guys playing their best at the right time, and they found the right combination, the right rotation. You know, you had guys like Gabe Brown, um, Bainum, Kithier. Uh, you had guys off the bench who were able foster lawyer who had their roles and were able to contribute enough. And then you had real star power at the top. And that's usually an equation to have a great, great run. Yeah. I think, and I think in addition to, to uh, Xavier Tillman too, and maybe this one didn't always come through on TV, but watching him in the games, you know, at home games, he was a general on defense, right? Like he was Absolutely. directing people everywhere. And I mean, you could see it on TV too, but he was always pointing, he was yelling and you could see people adjusting and, that was half the reason they they were so effective defensively. It was not just his his coverage, but it was all the other thing. He just knew, he sort of knew what the other team was going to do before they did it. Only only two guys I can think of at Michigan State Izzo's tenure who were in the same ballpark in the area you're talking about: Draymond Green. Yep. Um, and and he's gotten even better at that in the pros. I think that's what makes him such a great defender is not even what he does individually, but the way he understands everything going on and gets people where they need to be quarterbacks at basically. And then going way back Antonio Smith. Those are the only two guys. I, I agree with you completely at the level that X was at. And I think, you know, another thing to point out is that Michigan State was a balanced team that, that year they were number 10 offensively, number 13 defensively. They're number seven, Ken Palm going into the tournament. Uh, good shooting team, not like fantastic, but really good. Uh, good in the twos, pretty good three point shooting at what thirty five percent, seventy five percent from the line. I mean, they're they were a lethal team. Uh, so, and actually for turnover percentage, pretty good for a Michigan State team. What one hundred sixteenth out of, uh, yep. of the teams? Well, four, fourth best Izzo team of the Ken Palm right. era, and and the best they had had since the two thousand fifteen team where they finished seventy uh, first. So yeah, it was. It was a really good team in that respect, which helped. And and the one other thing that maybe you, if you look at efficiency was clearly rebounding was you, you saw you started seeing the signs of the decline in rebounding at that point. Um, yeah, and that was 
I feel in large part just no longer having Kenny Goins around, who just seemed to have just a nose for the ball yeah. and uh, on the defensive end, especially. It certainly wasn't X's fault, but you're. I would say not having Kenny Goins and and also the bugaboo that I've talked about for a while and to this day is an issue. Perimeter rebounding was not as good as it needed to be. So those guys like Cash and Rocket Watts and Aaron Henry and Gabe off the bench not as effective in chasing down missed threes as Michigan State needed them to be. It was the only knock on that team. When you look at it, um, you know, they were really, they were 10th in the country against both the three and the two. That's fantastic. And that's, yeah. if you want to talk about vintage Izzo defensive basketball, that's a, those two stats are ones you're going to zero in on. When Michigan State is good, they're good, not because they're turning people over or they're blocking, you know, or they're, you know, blocking everything into the fifth row. It's they are limiting how successful you are when you shoot the ball. And and that sounds simple, but it's not. And and that is the that is, to my opinion, those are the two key stats when you're talking about a Michigan State team defensively. As it stands, without a starter over six eight, they still finished in the top twenty five in block percentage, which was really surprising you know though Xavier Tillman again not a guy you'd look at and say oh that's going to be a, your big time shot blocker but he was yeah. on quite Marcus Bainham's level but X was a rim protector for sure and, and the defensive rebounding was the problem where they were 91st right and and I think you know X's um blocks in, in large part I think go to what we we're talking about a little bit ago just his anticipation knowing where things are going to be you know, you can be a lot shorter, but if you know where the ball's going, you know how they're going to shoot, and you've you know the you know you've watched film. You know this guy goes with his left hand or right hand or whatever. I yeah. think you just it gives you an advantage where you don't have to leave your feet. You don't have to be super athletic. You just have to position yourself in the, as long as you're you know from a height standpoint, you're like in a reasonable you know spot. So I think that was part most of his effectiveness. And in fairness, I forget his wingspan is is plus seven feet. I forget exactly. Sure. Well, what it of is. course, that helps too. He wasn't a, a, a six eight guy with a six nine wingspan. But, but yeah, I think you're right. I think it, it was his intelligence and his homework that made him that kind of defensive player, even as a rim protector, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. So we're going to go ahead and just skip the Big Ten tournament and just assume it's – and not worry about that. And and Joe Lenardi put out his, uh, his sample bracket, what would have happened. But before you do that, why don't we go into who the other teams were Michigan State's competition going into uh, national title hunt in 2020? Sure. I think, I think you start, uh, you have to start with Kansas and, and Kansas was the number one, uh, team according to Ken Palm. Um, so, you know, reasonable to, uh, to figure that that's where they would have, um, they would have been a one seed. Lenardi had them as a one in the Midwest, you know, interesting team. Um, they were, some of the guys that were part of this national championship team were on that, that club as well, but they were, um, I don't know, role players might be a little bit um, unkind, but definitely guys that were more of the support group than the main attraction. I'm talking primarily about um, uh, the, the, the 
Agbaji, who was fantastic this year, of course, and David McCormick, the big man, who was not even a starter on that Kansas team, but he did play a lot off the bench. The, the two guys who you really looked at were, if you remember, Devin Dotson, really good point guard, really, really good college point guard. He was the guy at the control. And then they had uh, Azubuiki, Udoka Azubuiki, the just monster seven-footer. Uh, was very much a guy in the, you know, Kofi Coburn kind of mold, just a gigantic human being, sort of an immovable object. If he gets the ball in the post, it's over. Um, so good team, obviously. Uh, great balance. They were the number eight offense and number two defense. So like Michigan State, except statistically even a little better. Um, but I personally think if it would have come down to a Michigan State Kansas matchup in the tournament that year, I would have liked Michigan State's chances because I think Tillman had proven he was a neutralizer, even if the other guy, you know, had four inches and 40 pounds on him. It didn't seem to matter. And and I think that would have been a difference maker. As certainly you can make a case for Kansas as the team who would have won it. And, and I couldn't say that that's crazy by any means, but I just felt like that matchup, I would have, I, I, I would have liked Michigan state's chances. I would have liked Michigan state's chances against anybody really. And Kansas would probably be the closest team to a, a, a peer at that point. I felt, but I, I do think Michigan state would have managed to find a way. Yeah. And so then another projected number one seed was Gonzaga who is, as always, an explosive offensive team, but struggles yeah. on the defensive end. Yeah, number one offense in the country, as you said, no surprise. But number 43 on defense. And, boy, if you are outside the top 40 on the defensive end, it's it's a tall task to win a title. You'd better have a great offense, and they did. But, I, you know, I it's, it's so hard to remember because Gonzaga has gotten into that, that – Duke Kentucky mold now where every year it seems like it's a new cast of characters. So I of course remember this year's team and the year prior where they got all the way to the title game before losing this cast of characters was very different. Um, you did have some of the guys who were part of that team the next year. Um, Corey Kispert, uh, Joel uh, Ayayi in the backcourt. They had Ryan Woolridge as their point guard who was okay, was good, not as good as the guys they rolled out the next season, uh, Suggs and um, um, Nemhart, but uh, but still an effective player. So this was a really good shooting team. They were number two in the country from three and number seven from two. And they were so good from two because in addition to those perimeter guys, they had a really good trio of big kids. They had um, Petrusev, who was a seven-foot center, they had Killian Tilley, who was a 6'10 four-man who could shoot the ball, too, and then a freshman, Drew Timmy. So it was a, a nice trio at that 4-5 position as well. But, you know, defense, as I say, when you're only number 43, you've, you're suspect, I think. As a title team, you're suspect. Um, there's also, of course, the usual thought that people debate have they been tested enough in the WCC? And that was not a super competitive year in the West Coast Conference. St. Mary's, I don't believe, was an NCAA tournament team that, or would have been an NCAA tournament team that season. 
Um, and they're usually the other team that you could point to in that league and say, okay, that's a quality opponent. Uh, Gonzaga only took two losses. They lost one in the league to BYU, and then they got blown out. I think they lost by 18 in Atlantis in November to Michigan. And that was during the height of Juwan Howard is God mania in Ann Arbor, where <laughs> Michigan went out and won that tournament somehow. And then, you know, fell flat on their faces in the Big Ten before rallying late. They would have been a tournament team, but not not for long. Um, but that, you know, so that was it was a typical Gonzaga season in a lot of ways. Not like the last two years, more like many of the years in the previous decade where you looked at him and said, well, there's a lot of firepower, but it just doesn't feel like when push comes to shove, they're going to be able to check well enough. Yeah. Well, and then the, another team out of the big 12 Baylor was a favorite at this point too. Uh, They were uh, with the number 17 offense and number four defense. Yeah. A a lot. Unlike, well, uh, unlike Gonzaga, very much the same cast of characters that they would carry over to the next season. And they won the title. Who knows? Maybe that's the difference is that they had most of those guys back for a second year running as the core of that team. Whereas Gonzaga, they had some of those guys back, but they had a lot of turnover. Um, The big difference between this Baylor team and the one that won the title was shooting. This was not a good shooting team. They were number 188 in effective field goal percentage, very poor percentage from two. Um, so if you remember that title year, how effective their guards were at playing inside out, they weren't just three point shooters. They were effective inside the arc too. They created easy chances for their big men. They didn't do that nearly as well during this season. Um, they weren't even that good at the free throw line. They were only 69% as a team. So that was a problem. You look at the differences between the two seasons and, and offensively, they made huge leaps. They went from being a poor shooting team to a very, very good one. Um, And that's, I think, why I don't believe this particular team would have won it. Defensively, really good everywhere except defensive rebounding. And, you know, we talked about Michigan State having a problem at number 91. Baylor was number 261. (laughs) So they were going to give up a lot of second chances. Again, in a matchup against Michigan State, a poor shooting team, probably shoots worse than that. And if their defense is limiting Michigan State's success, Michigan State's probably going to get a bunch of second chances. Yeah. So I, I would have liked that matchup. And I, I see Lenardi. Well, we'll go over that in a second. But yeah, they, I think actually Michigan State. We had, them had as Michigan a one State seed in, the, in the South. Yeah, right. Yeah. They were the one in the South. And, and the other one is Dayton. Uh, which you could almost just argue was sort of uh, Gonzaga light that they were number two offense and number 38 defense. Yeah. Yeah. The A-10. Everybody, I I think, remembers, maybe it's been lost in COVID, but Obi Toppin, their 6'9", do-it-all power forward, uh, who I believe is still with the Knicks in the NBA, uh, just had a sensational year. I think he was national player of the year. I believe he beat out Garza for that. Um, But it wasn't just him. He was the headline guy. But if you look at their roster, they had a bunch of juniors and seniors around it. Really good shooting team, best in the country overall. They were great from both two and three. Didn't do much as an offensive rebounding team, only at number 225. So if they did, again, in a matchup with Michigan State, 
I would think, all right, they're a great shooting team, but Michigan State's probably going to be able to limit them a bit. And then Dayton's not likely to get a bunch of second chances, which Michigan State had some problems with. But when you're only number 225, the odds are Michigan State probably would have limited them. Um, Defensively, you know, they weren't terrible in any area, but they just weren't spectacular either. There was nothing that you could hang your hat on if you were Dayton defensively. The other thing, and you mentioned they're in the A-10, and that's a league like some others, like, you know, uh, Conference USA or the American or um, sometimes a league like the Missouri Valley or the Mountain West or WCC. These leagues that vary quite a bit from year to year. There are years where they've got multiple tournament teams, multiple good tournament teams, and you'd say, okay, winning the A-10, you've run a bit of a gauntlet. I don't think this was one of those years. Their schedule I looked at, they faced one top 50 Ken Palm team after Christmas and only four on the entire season against which they were only two and two. Yeah. So that doesn't give you a lot. Just to put it into perspective, MSU played 20 top 50 teams <laughs> that season. Big difference, 20 to four. Uh, I think it's fair to be suspicious of what Dayton would have done. Another notable team, you always have to talk about Duke. Uh, they were, again, number nine offense, number 12 defense. I think we kind of talked about them, and they were obviously people could consider a, a reasonable favorite to win the tournament. Uh, the other one would be San Diego State, which is you know not in there every in the mix every year. Uh, but they were another team that's outside the power five, and you always wonder, is it inflated record? Is it inflated statistics because you're playing inferior competition? It's always hard to know. Only played six teams against Ken Palm top 50s. Now, they were 5-1 and one in those games, so they fared well when they faced better competition, but not a, lot of, not a lot of games against them. Overall, very balanced. Number 11 offense, number 10 defense. Uh, they were an exceptionally good. They were kind of like a Michigan State team in terms of profile, not necessarily style. But the better Izzo teams – tend to be very good shooting teams who also really limit their opponent's shooting success. Those two things usually go hand in hand. That's what San Diego State did. They were not a very good rebounding team, though, so that was kind of an issue there. Uh, their main guy was their point guard, Malachi Flynn, uh, mostly veteran group around him, kind of similar to the way Dayton surrounded Obi Toppin. Uh, you know, certainly would have had a chance, but again, you're at least I'm suspicious of them because they were not facing that great, great competition game in, game out. And, you know, unlike a Gonzaga, where at least we can usually say, all right, but in November and December, they face some very, very good teams. So you at least get a level check, even though it's early. San Diego State really didn't even have that. So hard to know. And finally, let's, I guess we can just briefly touch on a couple of dark horses, Louisville and Maryland. Yeah, you know, Louisville, I said in the notes, another what if, a non-Michigan State what if, is if this tournament had been played and they'd done well, which they might have, this was a good Louisville team, does Chris Mack still have his job? He never really had a breakthrough season there. This was going to be that year. You could also, by the way, say say the same thing about Pat Chambers at Penn State. yeah, Because they were going to go to the tournament. Um, Steve Peichel has been fortunate enough that it felt like it might be that kind of deal for him too, but he's managed to get Rutgers back to the tournament the two, two years after. So he got over that hump guys like Mac and chambers did not 
this Louisville team, great from three, um, great team field goal against defense, both from three and from two, solid rebounding at both ends. Uh, their star was Jordan Nawara. They had a good year in the ACC. I think, I think they would have been a threat to, um, to go deep. And then the other team, which we touched on earlier, and it's just hard to know, is Maryland. Maryland should have won the Big Ten outright. But they were two and three down the stretch. One of those losses came to Michigan State, which hurt them because it was head-to-head, too. And they just blew what should have been an outright league title. Um, I understand people looking at a team coached by Mark Turgeon and thinking, nah, I'm not going to bet on that. I get it. Uh, But, boy, you had Stick Smith, who just had a tremendous year for them as kind of a modern-type four or five guy who could stretch a defense, but was so big inside that he could do damage in the post too. They had a senior point guard, Anthony Cowan, who was very tough uh, both ways. And then they had younger guys like uh, Ayala and Wiggins who really, really shot the ball well that year. So Maryland had the pieces. I think if you, if you doubt that they would have done much damage, it has to be that you just don't have faith in Mark Turgeon to get the best out of them when it matters. And I can't argue with that, but I would put them in this dark horse category because they might have figured it out. They certainly have the talent to do so. Sure. And in some ways you just have to figure out for six games. I mean, they're the right. Comes right. becomes increasingly difficult, but it is only six games matchup dependent, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. you know, anything can happen, which is why the tournament's so compelling. All right, so let's look at the four regions. Uh, the Midwest is Kansas at the number one, Kentucky number two, Duke three, and Wisconsin the four seed. Who do you like coming out of that? I, I would have gone with Kansas. Kentucky had a good team that year, not a not a great Kentucky team. They, as you, we mentioned earlier, they beat Michigan State in the opener, uh, the Champions Classic. Um, but I, I just never felt – I actually like number three Duke more than number two Kentucky, but – Boy, that's a power. Boy, when you look at that Kansas, Duke, and Kentucky in the same region, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I would go with Kansas. I, I just think, I just think it was it was there. They had the right kind of right kind of team set up to go deep, and even with the, those big, uh, you know, elite blue blood names in the region. And then they would play the winner of the West, which is lined up with Gonzaga as the one, San Diego State as the two, Seton Hall as the three, and Oregon as the four. Yeah, I would. I no, think I like Gonzaga there, but you maybe some Gonzaga, I'll, San Diego. I'll, maybe San Diego State pulls that one off, huh? Yeah, I, I'll, there's another team there, and I just want to take a quick look that that catches my eye, um, and I just want to see. Well, they were only twentieth overall in Ken Palm, but boy, I really liked Seton Hall that year. You know, Seton Hall was, let's see. So they were the second highest rated team in the Big East behind Villanova, who was 18th. But that Seton Hall team, if you remember, they had tons of size. They had a great, great individual guard in Miles Powell. Yep. Um, I, I might be, in, because I didn't have a lot of faith in Gonzaga as a defensive team, and San Diego State, I just don't know if I could be convinced to pull the trigger on them to get to a Final Four. I might be inclined to go with Seton Hall. Okay, so then, uh, well, so the Final Four, it'd be Kansas Seton Hall. And then if we move to the East, the number one seed there is Dayton. Uh, number two is Florida State. Three, Villanova. And four is Maryland. 
boy, I don't. I can't. I can't pick Dayton. Doesn't seem real strong, does it? I mean, it seems like a weaker region. And and I want to take a look at at where Florida. You know, Florida State only number thirty two on offense, but fifteenth on defense. They were the second highest rated. I'm sorry, third highest rated ACC team behind Duke and Louisville in Ken Palm rankings. But boy, it's hard to pick Florida State to get to a Final Four either, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, you almost get counting on their defense to take carrying them all the way there, which is yeah, I think, that's a you know, lot. A lot to ask sometimes. A lot to hang your hats on. Yeah, I. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna You're go with Maryland, aren't you? Maryland, yeah. Okay. Oh, Maryland. Turgeon puts it together, it and and that's another one. Let's say they had done. Oh my that, gosh, it's yeah. not crazy. Where are they now? Where's Mark Turgeon now? He's still coaching there for sure, right? Oh, I, I mean, think I was, so. I think you'd have to. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's go to the final region, the South region, which is uh, has Michigan State. So yeah, Baylor's the one, Creighton is a two, Michigan State as three, and Louisville as the four. And we'll just go through the matchups here because the first round matchup is Michigan State. They're facing off uh, with against um, number Bradley, uh, number th- fourteen Bradley. <laughs> Bradley. Yeah, Bradley. Lunardi loves having the Missouri Valley play Michigan State. I'm not. That was <laughs> yeah. That was the that was the game that Aaron Henry got. Yeah, the next know, year. All the drama. Or the previous yeah. year. Yeah, right. You you would figure. Look, I look at that setup. You're you're playing Bradley, and then you play the winner of Virginia and Cincinnati. I think Michigan State has a pretty easy path to the Sweet 16 there. The interesting thing is the other side of that bracket, you've got Creighton at number two, which I, yeah, I don't think so, man. Not not <laughs> in the NCAA tournament. In fact, I would not have picked Creighton. I think Michigan State would have been playing Illinois in the Sweet 16. Illinois was a number seven seed, but that team was playing very well down the stretch. Yeah. They had started to figure it out, and it really was where that was the point where they built momentum to go into the next season where, you know, they had a real chance to win the Big Ten in a loaded year. They didn't end up doing it, but that was in part due to COVID, you know, Michigan being able to duck a couple games as much as anything else. I'm going to say Illinois beats Southern Cal and then beats Creighton to get to the Sweet 16. Michigan State. The, the problem Illinois had is they had Dosunmu and um, Coburn against Winston and Tillman, and Michigan State wins that one. At least in 2020, they do. Yeah, sure. For um, sure. I totally agree. So Michigan State gets to the Elite Eight. The other half of the bracket is interesting because you got Baylor as a one, but that, that was not the Baylor team of a year later. Right. Um Interesting eight, nine games, St. Mary's and Rutgers. I actually think Rutgers might've been able to give Baylor a game in the second round. And then the other half, probably you'd you'd go with Ohio state against Louisville. Ohio state was also, it's funny. They didn't get as much talk as either of the last two seasons. But when you look at them, that Ohio state team was pretty good defensively. They didn't have the defensive problems. They have, they've had the last couple of years. I'm going to say Louisville gets out of that side of the bracket in a, in a tight one with Baylor in the sweet 16 and then Michigan state beats Louisville in the elite eight to go to the final four. And so you have Kansas and playing Seton hall and you have Michigan state playing Maryland Maryland in the, (laughs) that's an interesting final four. So who do you have with Kansas and, uh, and Seton hall? I imagine 
Kansas, Kansas, right? Yeah. So Kansas. Yeah. And then Michigan state over Maryland, uh, in the rubber game. Um, and we don't know had a big 10 tournament been played. They might've played in that too. Sure. Who knows? Uh, but I, yeah, I think at that time of the year, I mean, I know I picked the Maryland team that was reeling to somehow win four straight and get to that point. <laughs> Someone's got to win four. <laughs> but I think, I think I would be, I'd have a hard time picking against Michigan state. And then the title game, look, if anybody wanted to say that Kansas should be favored in that matchup, I, I'm not going to necessarily disagree. I think it would be very tight, but I just, I felt like Michigan state, the way they were playing, the fact that they were, they were led by a senior and a junior in Tillman who really might as well have been a senior plus when you think about the maturity that he played with. And then those younger guys were finding themselves Watts playing the best basketball of his career. Henry playing better Malik Hall, at least solidifying that four spot. And they got enough off the bench from guys like Brown and lawyer and Bingham that I, I know it's a Homer pick, but I think there were a lot of other people nationally that were there with me. I think Michigan state beats Kansas in a tight one to win the title. Yeah. I, really I think did. we'll give, we'll take our provisional national championship right there uh, in 2020. <laughs> uh, and, and I, and I think, you know, there, there are other things too, the spinoffs with the COVID, I think it really hurt. I, I think the fact that there was no tournament, I think really hurt perception for Michigan state from their fan base. And I think it really was painful because I think had they done the real, a lot of damage, then there'd been a lot more latitude given to Izzo and sort of what's been happening the last yes, two years. I agree with Not that. that it's been a disaster, but it's, there've been, they've been, I mean, two years ago, it was a struggle to get in the tournament, made it. Uh, and then of course this year it was, you know, not sweet 16 again, but you know, of course, that was Sweet 16 wasn't played three years before when I think we both agree that probably a very good chance that they would have made at least the Sweet 16, if not the Elite Eight. Yeah. Uh, to the regional Whether, finals. I mean, look, honestly, I think they get jobbed by Lunardi on this. Now, I I don't recall enough of what was going on. And, and we did, you just pick Lunardi here. Lunardi is never the best bracket guy in terms of accuracy. Um. And he was doing this at a point, obviously, where conference tournaments had not been played. That would have right, been yeah. things. I actually think he's got MSU as a three. I think Michigan State was in a spot that, depending upon how things went in conference tournaments, I think they had a small chance at claiming a one. Um, now, I'd have to go back. I didn't go back and look at, look at the net again. Um, but I just know the way they were playing, and I know the – the expectation around that team was of that level. At, at the very least, I think Lunardi makes a mistake here with Michigan State and Creighton. I think you flip them. And Michigan sure. State should have been no worse than a two. Yeah. And this. I think this is and this is a reflection where the conference tournaments do make a difference, right? Because you're playing another two, three games and you're against high yeah. level competition where a team like Creighton or San Diego State or, you know, they're not playing the same level of competition. Right. And so you're you have more you're, opportunities. Yeah. Right. You have more opportunity to move. And also you have teams like Baylor and Kansas. It's easy to imagine one of those teams is not going to have a one as well. Right. You have one's a one and one's a two. And so there's I, some movement there I, too. Right. I would have thought that Kansas had done enough that it didn't matter for them. I don't think you can necessarily say the same thing about Baylor. Right. Baylor was one of those teams. I would say looking at this, the one seeds, yeah, I, I would. Dayton had probably done enough, but 
and so had Gonzaga, and it was unlikely either one of them was not going to win their conference tournament. But Baylor was the vulnerable one to me. And when I look at the twos, I mean, Creighton's a two, San Diego State, State two, Florida State. No way should yeah. Florida State have been a two over Michigan State. And I don't think Kentucky had done enough. I mean, again, Ken Palm is not the be-all, end-all, but Ken Palm hit Kentucky at 29. <laughs> 29. He had Creighton at 12, five spots behind Michigan State. He had Florida State at 15, eight spots behind Michigan State. Now, now again, it's not the be-all and end-all. I'd have to go back and and take another look at, which I'm not inclined to do, but take another (laughs) look at where the net was sitting at that time. But, man, it's hard to imagine Michigan State being seated behind all of those teams, especially if they had gone on even a run to the tournament final not even necessarily winning it. Um, Just difficult to imagine. So, yeah, I mean, look, this is, we're, and I don't don't recall whether you mentioned this at the outset, but one of the things we're going to do this summer is do a series of these what-if episodes where we're going to, and there's a, as I think a lot of our (laughs) listeners know, there are a lot of moments like these over, not exactly like this one, but a lot of moments over the years where one thing happens that really you can see a fork in the road for how a season turns out for Michigan State. You know, um, there's a bunch of them. But this one was by far the most disappointing because they didn't even get a chance. Like right. you can look at one one that we'll look at in, in a future episode is the 2010 team. They went to the Final Four, got beat by Butler in the semis on, you know, the foul that wasn't <laughs> yeah and you can say well man the, the what if there is which we'll talk about is what if Kalen lucas doesn't doesn't blow his achilles in the second round game against maryland but that team still got to play yeah and that team was, still yeah. got to a final four um you know keith appling's wrist injury in 2013 team that go, gets to the elite eight and loses to UConn. Okay, very much a big what if if Keith was healthy, but that team still got to the Elite Eight. You know, they got to win three games, including a huge one against Virginia. This team never got that chance to to go on any kind of run. So it's even worse. And it felt like they were positioned better than either of those teams I mentioned going into the tournament. I mean, it felt that way to me. I think it felt that way to most fans that, those other two years, Michigan State was not being talked about going into the tournament in quite the way as this team was. It wasn't a shock that they went deep, but they weren't being talked about like this group was, in and, my opinion. And I, am I wrong in think, remembering the 20 season two? Is that, is that when Langford got injured? Was he playing well at the beginning of the season or was it the year before? He I did, can't remember. He, it was the year before, but Josh didn't even really play right, at all. Yeah, so on this team. So they had thought they would have him back and then they really didn't. Um, it was the year prior that he got hurt. Yeah. Okay. Um, right before big 10 play started. Right. And, and I, I felt, I think the thing I felt the most sad about the, the COVID year is that there was Cassius Winston sort of represented that big recruiting class that came in miles bridges, Jaron Jackson, Langford and him. And thought it was, a, it was a, sort of the culmination of that, of that class and the, the ability to, for them to make the really big run that I think everyone expected at some point, And then to just not have an opportunity to even, well, to even get it. 
Yes, like, they, they did make the run the year before. Right, but but you know that final four counts. But I know what. But you he's mean. a senior year. You know, Tillman's got. I mean, it just felt like they just got they got for those off. two guys is where I why I feel that way. For Cassius Winston and Xavier Tillman, you know, and and we bring up Cassius, I think the fact that he didn't get the chance to do that, to win a title, or let's say even just get to a second Final Four, that has an impact on how you're viewed historically. And I think he did enough. It always used to be, in my mind, the greatest player at Michigan State discussion. It's just my opinion. There's certainly reasonable minds can differ. Um, number one is clear. There's no debate about it. That's off the table. After that, I think it, it had historically, for years and years and years, been a very difficult choice for me between Scott Skiles and Mateen Cleaves in that number two spot. And, and the reason is they had such varied careers. I have never seen an individual, including Magic Johnson, have a better individual season than Scott Skiles had as a senior. He was unbelievable. Unbelievable. It was, it was an eight inch shorter version of Larry Bird. That's what he was because he had no business athletically doing the things that he was doing. And yet he was doing them. You're talking about a guard in the pre three point shot era that shot plus 50%. I think he shot 56% from the floor, a six, one guard who can't move really <laughs> yeah. 56% from the floor. He grabbed like four and a half rebounds a game. Tons of assists, you know, led the league. It was one of the top scorers, if not the top scorer in the country. I mean, just an insane year. But Scott also played on more talented teams than his senior year group earlier in his career. And in his own words, played with his head up his ass. <laughs> Mateen Cleaves did not ever have an individual season, the level of Scott Skiles senior year, but he won two Big Ten Player of the Years, went to two Final Fours, won three Big Ten titles. Oh, and he won the national championship and is next to Magic Johnson, the greatest leader I've ever seen at Michigan State. Skiles would probably be third. So figuring out which of those two guys has the edge on a on day to day, I would probably give you a different answer. I usually ended up giving Cleves the benefit of the doubt because he had the national title. But now you enter Winston into this discussion, and he hasn't been gone long enough for me to have fully digested and internalized how I view his career. But I do think he has to be in this discussion because he was Big Ten Player of the Year as a junior and a contender for National Player of the Year. Um, didn't quite repeat as a senior, but had a sensational senior year got to a final four, his first two years statistically are better, certainly statistically and winning combined, they are better than Cleves or Skiles at that point in their careers. I mean, Cash has shot 50% from three as a sophomore. People forget that because he wasn't the main guy. It was Miles and then Jaron Jackson. Cassius Winston was a killer as a sophomore. He won two Big Ten assist titles and was one total assist away from winning it as a freshman. So he could have had three, didn't win it as a senior, but all-time Big Ten leader in assists, three Big Ten titles, and he was the main guy on two of them. Yeah. 
So where do you, he's in the discussion. I don't know how I feel yet for sure about where he fits in, but he's in that discussion. If he had had the chance to play this out and they get back to another final four or they win it, if they win it, I think he clear cut probably is the number two guy. When you look at his career stats, if they get to another final four, it becomes a very, very, very difficult discussion. As it stands, I think it's still a discussion, but a run would have helped his case, you know? And and then you add in the storyline about what his senior year was like with what we talked about earlier. Uh, Yeah. What a capper it would have been, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, that would have been, uh, (laughs) there would have been a lot of stories about that had to be in the final four that year. Yeah. Well, again, thanks so much to Patrick for this great idea. I think we're gonna have a lot of fun with these, and we're gonna have some more. Like as you yeah, mentioned, we got a, we got a bunch. We got we got, we, got a we have a, an almost unlimited supply. <laughs> you can start thinking about all sorts of different things, and and then of course you know we're gonna be getting to the regular season soon too. Not long from now, with season you know previews and all that kind of stuff. So we got all kinds of content coming. Well, yeah, we're, we're starting to get to the tail end of roster season, um, as a. a poster on the Spartan mag board calls it, which I think is a great name for it. Uh, We're getting to the end, but we're not there yet to the point where I feel like we can definitively start to do it. Uh, Just to to telegraph it for people. I don't know how the hell we're going to do it making picks because when I look at the big 10, it looks like a gigantic mess to me. There are teams and Michigan state's included in this. There are teams that have clear strengths but there's nobody who looks the way Purdue did last season or several teams did the year before or the year before that where Michigan State looked so good. Nobody on, on that level. So I, I'm, I'm getting my coin ready to start flipping. Let's, let's put it that way because um, it's, it's going to be very tough. And I don't mean like, oh, among two or three teams, who's the favorite? I mean down to eight or nine. I don't know. You know so, what? You're not allowed to handicap it for yourself. We're going to hold you to the fire. We're going to make sure. We're, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're going to. We're going Maybe to this make is sure. the year I get them all right. Yeah, right. It, this is right. It's like the uh, the secretary picking the final four. Right. <laughs> basketball. Right. But it, it is, the names it is like. going to be wide. I mean, calling it wide open is fair. It's going to be fun. I think it's going to be great. For season. It's going to be fun. I think it's going to be where which teams develop more gel and, you know, for injuries sure. and all those things. Right. If you have a lot of teams. A lot of things can happen. It's, it, it'll be a real interesting season. I can't wait. If you can, it's really how well do, are your strengths actually your strengths? Do they stay your strengths? And how well you can overcome what look to be your weaknesses? You know, every year we see teams that manage to do it. You know, um, last year heading into the season, I don't know that I, I definitely did not expect Wisconsin to be as competitive as they were. I didn't think Iowa would be anywhere close to as good as what they were, you know, and, and there were teams that were on the other end of it. I think Michigan state, Michigan were both a little disappointing relative to what we thought they might be in the preseason. So, you know, every year we see it. So yeah. that, that's what it will come down to. Well, let's pivot and talk about Mike Garland briefly. So Mike Garland, it's been on the staff, I think 22 years with Izzo yeah. and he's, he announced his retirement. And so I guess the first question is, you know, what did he do? And then, and so what was his role at, with the program and his importance? And then I guess then the next question is, you know, what sort of hole 
Well, who's going to be filled that hole and what needs to be filled? Well, the first one first. Um, Mike Garland last year transitioned into a new role. He was no longer an assistant coach. He was on the staff. So that was done. He's had, without going into all the details, he has a son who has had some ongoing health issues. And so that was really making it difficult for him to do the job that is necessary for an assistant coach to do in a program like Michigan State, which one of the primary responsibilities is if you are an assistant coach as opposed to a staff member, you have the ability to go off campus and recruit. And so that alone, if you're doing that, that takes you away from your family much, much more than if you're in a staffer's role and you basically are staying home. So they made that switch last season. Um, and then, you know, apparently after a year of that, and just seeing how things felt, he said in his statement today that it's primarily because he does still feel good at, I think he's 67, he's the same age as Izzo, um, that he wants to be able to have some years with his family when he's still healthy, when he's yeah. he's not plagued by any kind of issues health-wise. And boy, who, who can argue with that, right? When you talk about his role, I mean, you mentioned it. He's been with Izzo every year Izzo's been at Michigan State, except for the, I'd have to go back and look, three years, four years that he was head coach at Cleveland State, a job that Izzo made him take from what I've heard. He didn't want to take it. Um, and Izzo felt like he needed to. And he tried it. It didn't go the way he wanted it to. He ended up getting dismissed, came back to Michigan State, and he's been there ever since. He is, from what I understand, um, his and he's, of course, got a role in X's and O's and teaching and all that stuff, too. But if you had to identify the, the thing that he excelled in, it seems, above and beyond everybody else on the staff, from what you hear, the stories that players tell, that the other coaches tell, it was as the guy who really had the pulse of the team, who was closest to the players. Like we've been talking about Cassius Winston's situation with his brother. From what I understand, the first guy he told at Michigan State was Mike Garland. That tells you something. And, and apparently that was the role that he played with just about everybody at Michigan State. He was also, I had heard, he was the guy who would be standing outside a player's dorm or apartment at in time. So I was going to say 8 a.m., but it must have been earlier than that when they had an 8 a.m. class to make sure they were making it. <laughs> that was one of the things I've heard that he did regularly. You know, it was kind of that monitor of what they were doing academically. Were they showing up? Um, so clearly he's going to be missed. I mean, this is a guy. Tom Izzo started in the same backcourt with him at Northern Michigan. So they've known each other since, as Izzo put it today, um, the first day Izzo was in college, he's known Mike Garland. So that's a hell of a resource and a person to lose. Somebody who's been with you and in your life that long, that's, that's daunting. And even though last year he had taken a little bit of a step back, so that provided a little bit of a transition, it's still, I have to believe it's going to be felt. Um, I would say this. We talked about it when we did the episode on Thomas Kelly and how 
it seems very clear that one of the things, as I was emphasizing, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, is he wanted guys that he knows. Well, you can understand it a little bit more now, can't you? Yeah. He knew this was coming. This, sure. this this decision didn't get made today, you know? So I think it's very easy to understand that. Now, having said that, we will see what happens with this position. My understanding is, and um, a lot of this credit goes to Jim Comperoni, who had this yesterday. Um, we'll see what ends up actually happening. But from that and a little bit I heard from somebody else today, um, I think they're going outside the family and this next person is not going to be an assistant coach. They've got that covered, but he's going to be in that director of recruiting job that Doug Wojcik had when he first came back. And then Mark Montgomery had for like a minute until Mike Garland stepped back and Montgomery had to become a full-time member of the staff again. Um, they are going to bring in somebody, as I understand it, and I don't know any more than this, from another Power Five, and not a blue blood. It's going to be somebody who apparently, as I understand it, has had to recruit in um, less than advantageous situations. So they've kind of proven their mettle. That's all I know. Um, but it'll be interesting to see who that is in the days ahead. And I'm, I'm not sure what their timeline is, but I would think they'd want to get somebody in there relatively soon. I'd be a little surprised if it takes as long as the Thomas Kelly announcement did, but sure. we'll see. And you wonder if at some, on some level, I, from the timing standpoint, Thomas Kelly, you bring him in and then what it's been about 10 days, almost or two weeks yeah. since that announcement. Yeah. It, it, that's sort of like a reasonable amount of time to allow the media to sort of get used to the new person. And then you say, okay, here's the next thing that's happening. And to your point, he knew this was happening probably months ago. But he's like, I'm going to short my assistant coach coaching position first. Yeah. And then because, you know, Stevens is gone and then he's been working on this as well. I'm sure it's, the whole time. Right? It's pretty, it, it's pretty interesting in one sense. So I saw somebody, uh, one of the local media guys had this today at the end of the COVID year, at the end of the 2021 season, Michigan state had the longest tenured staff in all of college basketball. I think Dane Fife was the low man on the pole in terms of uh, on the totem pole in terms of seniority. And I think Dane was at Michigan state for 10 years. I think that sounds about, and right, he was yeah. the low man, yeah. Mike Garland, as we just talked about and Dwayne Stevens was, had to be close to 20 years. Maybe it was 18, something like that, but a long time. Um, all three of those guys are gone. They're all gone now. So yet you look at the Michigan state staff and it doesn't feel like it's an entirely new thing because Mark Montgomery was an assistant here for a number of years, I think seven or eight years. Doug Wojcik was an assistant for maybe two or three and then has been back on staff for a couple years and then was an assistant again last year. So those guys are not new faces, you know, so that's why it does. It maybe doesn't feel as jarring as it would in most situations where you say, Hey, all three guys from, you know, the season before last are gone. And then Thomas Kelly is, you know, had been a grad assistant, not that long ago, five years ago, six years ago, and now he's back and he played here. So it doesn't feel the way a quote unquote brand new staff would typically feel you would think, but that is 
the situation that MSU's in. They no longer have that that tenure title. Sure, and and I think you know you don't certainly feel like the house on fire. You don't feel no. like, uh, no. and, and that's it's because uh, there definitely this can happen to other staffs where they just all leave for other various reasons, and it definitely feels like chaos. It does not feel that way. It feels very controlled. It's sort of um, yeah. set up so. Well, and, and you know, and again, we talked about this when TK got the job. There were other names that would have been satisfying, I think, from a Michigan State perspective, who didn't get the job. So as opposed to some other years where something had come up and it didn't necessarily feel like there were obvious choices that you'd feel good about, um, this was not one of those years. There were multiple guys that you could have looked at and made a good case for, and it ended up being Thomas Kelly, but it could have been two or three other guys. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there, and uh, we'll, I'm sure as soon as uh, someone's hired, we'll talk about the new person and sort of what they've done and their role within Michigan State. So again, uh, if you want to send your ideas for shows or any questions, please hit us up on tw- uh, either on Twitter at TFFINOTS68, or you can go to email at TFFINOTS at gmail.com. Again, try not to forget to leave a written review on your favorite podcast player. We'd appreciate it. And until next time, the Final Four is not on the schedule. Go green. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.